This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Spark My Muse. Today, I'm very excited to have a guest on Holly Oxenhandler. She is an associate professor at Baylor University, a social worker and a researcher. She also is a podcaster with Robert Vore as she hosts the podcast CXMH, Christianity and Mental Health. Holly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, Lisa, it is such a gift to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation and opportunity. Sure. I was really excited that you had this book coming out, and it really is a book for helpers, which is sometimes the people who don't get the help. You know, they are maybe the people helping but are not getting the help that they need. And your book is called The Soul of the Helper, Seven Stages to Seeing the Sacred Within Yourself So You Can See It in Others with Templeton Press. And so I get the sense this was a long time in the making. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the background of the book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, it, it it is a long time in the making, and which has been an incredible process and journey in and of itself, I would say. Um, but this book is, it weaves in layers of my own journey and story um, as a helper, but really, I think the nudge to write this book really came out of my research that I had been doing, um, looking at the intersection of faith and mental health and um, trying to better understand, you know, what is it that's happening in the the mental health care settings? How and to what degree are mental health care providers paying attention to clients' faith as it relates to mental health treatment? You know, and, and do they want to talk about it? And what are clients saying about it? Anyways, all that to say, like, it really was born out of that research, um, recognizing that as mental health care providers uh, were more um, motivated to live out their faith, I was finding in the data that they tended to be more motivated to integrate their clients' faith. This just, you know, completely, it, it really surprised me in a lot of ways. And this research, I just, I started to to see this pattern, not only in my data, but in others' data hmm. um, as other professions had very similar findings, but really the heartbeat behind that is is tied to recognizing that as we ethically integrate client spirituality into mental health treatment, hmm. we find that in many instances, their treatment outcomes are improved in a hmm. lot of ways or as impactful as if we hadn't um, or as effective, but in many, many cases, it, it does seem to be that that folks do have more better outcomes overall. Mm-hmm. And I write in this book about like how my own journey kind of led up to wanting to study this topic, mm-hmm. tied into you know my childhood and um, experiences with uh, trauma and abuse and rejection that I had kind of walked through as a kid, mm-hmm. and the experiences with mental health care providers that, you know, some who did integrate my faith and some who did not, and um, and even experiences with faith leaders who, in many instances, you know, they, they didn't know how to talk about mm. this intersection. So, yeah. yeah, so those are kind of a few layers that kind of weave into the backstory behind it. So it's a good 
thing to encounter because at least to bring up the issues because it just seems like how can you really disconnect a person from usually something that's so incredibly meaningful into their formation of their identity and their personhood and their wounding. So, you know, when you're not going to encounter any of that, it's like you're not really speaking to the whole person. That is absolutely right. You are a thousand percent right. Um, and in, and I know in social work, so originally I had thought that I would be going into psychology and, um, and that was, you know, at, at one point earlier on, but as I, you know, had shifted into social work and really fallen in love with the profession of social work, I recognize that in, in many instances, we talk about this biopsychosocial mm-hmm. perspective of individuals, but we really weren't talking as much about the spiritual. Now we're, we're moving in that direction more and paying better attention mm-hmm. to this component as well within folks' lives. But you're absolutely right. We can't disentangle these because in many ways, our spirituality or our faith or you know what we believe in um, can be something that we lean on through difficult times and as we navigate struggles in life. But it also can be something that you know, we've experienced harm related to like spiritual trauma or um, things that our faith communities have done that have hurt mm-hmm. us. And so we, we can't disentangle our spiritual journey from our mental health journey. And in recognizing that the vast majority of U.S. adults um, do consider themselves to be spiritual or religious. Like that is one piece that we need to be contemplating. But we also recognize that over 80% of us in the U.S., um, or I'm sorry, over 80% of us in general are going to meet criteria for a diagnosable mental illness Mm -hmm. at some point in our lives, whether that's um, by the time we're a young adult or middle age. Mm -hmm. You know, this human condition includes mental health struggles as much as the physical health struggles Mm -hmm. that we navigate. So, yeah, and there's such complex areas. So um, we've got to be considering both of them together side by side. I wish that there was more of an idea of people thinking of their brain and their, their mental health as their physical health. I mean, it, it's just, if, yes. if you're going to get a cold or a broken bone in your life at some point, right. you will probably also have a mental health struggle at some point too, whether it's anxiety, right. depression, something that needs medication or something yes. that needs extra help. It shouldn't be so strange to think you're a body, you're organic, <laughs> you're not mm-hmm. flawless, you're not a machine. It shouldn't be so strange to think that something might go haywire sometimes. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And I, I'm i with you in that I really do wish that we were um, we were more open in talking about these topics because you're right, like it shouldn't be the, it, it shouldn't be weird. It doesn't make us weird or weak or anything like that to have these struggles. It's just part of who we are. And and it's it's just a representation in some ways of either a chemical imbalance or it may be that the, what we're going through and navigating um, just exceeds our ability to cope with that given mm-hmm. various resources and um, experiences and networks. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's part of who, who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 80% huge. You you would be weird to not have a problem. Yeah, that's right. That's right. At some point. At some point. Yeah. Right. Right. 
yeah. in your lifetime anyway. That's right. Well, I want to pull out what the publisher says about your book and just to give people mm -hmm. an idea of what's going on. They have on the website is this part next to your book, caretakers come in many forms from parents to teachers, nurses to doctors, social workers to first responders, faith leaders to family members. What they all have in common, in addition to admirably high levels of empathy, is a tendency to work for the well-being of others to the point of burnout. When this happens, heavy feelings creep in of shame, fear, anger, and resentment. These are surefire signs of mental, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion. Yet mm -hmm. caretakers usually have no recourse, and they feel that if they were to take a step back, they would be failing in their duty. Coming from a background in faith-based mental health, Dr. Oxhandler teaches helpers a seven-step process to slow down and reconnect with the stillness within themselves. That stillness, what Oxhandler calls the sacred spark, is the seed of the soul. By allowing themselves to exist in that stillness for a time, caregivers will come to understand that they too are worthy of care. What's more, they will be able to see freshly the sacred spark that dwells inside everyone else, including the person or persons for whom they are caring. So maybe you can just speak to that a little bit. That is, I mean, I have heard the story time and again, the people who are the most helpful may be the least caring for themselves. It's true. Um, and there are so many ways in which helpers have this wholehearted desire to serve and support and help and heal. And there are really incredible and noble reasons for all those things that they want to do to serve others. Um, it is a gift. Like helpers are a gift in the fabric of our humanity. And mm -hmm. they they truly do matter in, in helping to heal this world. Now, what's difficult is that as helpers are thinking of everybody else around them, um, they are less inclined to be thinking about themselves, as you mentioned. They, they are human. They have limitations. But when you're constantly thinking about everybody else around you, you're not really cognizant of those limitations. You're not mindful of them or thinking about them. And, you know, and it's, it's very easy to think, oh, I'll just do one more thing mm. or go to one more meeting or, you know, push through this one one more thing or one more cup of coffee or whatever it is um, mm -hmm. to just keep going. But the problem is, is that as we do that, we absolutely position ourselves to be at risk of burnout. Mm -hmm. And that can be very difficult to recognize, especially when we are operating within a system and a culture that just says, go, go, go. And it affirms our efforts. It affirms our efficiency and productivity. Mm -hmm. um, those accolades and affections, um, those can be really addictive. And that's, that's hard to admit as mm -hmm. a helper, but those can be really addictive to just be thinking, oh, good, well, I'm helping others. Mm. Uh, but, but we don't take that time to pay attention to our own inner landscape, our own intersection of faith and mental health. Kind of circling back to that that research um, in seeing what was happening with mental health care providers who were more motivated to live out their faith. What I was finding is that what is happening in their inner landscape, it is absolutely 
um, influencing the ways that they're helping and serving others. Mm-hmm. And as um, I kind of sat with that and wrestled with it, I, I, I ended up publishing this grounded theory called uh, Namaste Theory after mm-hmm. reading a bit more about the roots and origin of that word um, within mm-hmm. the, um, the Hindu culture. I really started to see how this isn't just for mental health care providers, but it's for helpers in general in mm-hmm. recognizing that we have got to be paying careful attention to our inner landscape um, and tending to our own needs to the Mm -hmm. best of our ability as we go out and serve others um, so that we don't unintentionally hurt others in the Mm -hmm. ways that we're trying to help. So maybe you can explain the theory and this inner spark that you're speaking of. I think Parker Palmer speaks about the inner Mm -hmm. light, and I think there's a lot of things jiving there. and what people might come to think of as their, their true self or um, something like that. But it's kind of something that everyone has. And maybe you could just mm-hmm. kind of uh, lay the groundwork for what you mean. Yeah, that that's such a good question. So to unpack namaste theory a bit, you know, as I was reading about what um, A.K. Uh, Krishna Nambiar had been writing about namaste, the origins of that word, the the Sanskrit um, term originally translates to mean I bow to you, but more generally, um, with this spiritual underpinning. It does translate to mean the sacred in me recognizes the sacred in you or the divine in me recognizes the divine in you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really seemed to be bringing order to what I was finding with mental health care providers, which is kind of where mm-hmm. the theory had uh, originated. Um, now, as I began to better understand this, though, as it relates to helpers in general, um, and honestly, transparently, like had to wrestle with this in mm-hmm. my own life and thinking about, well, do I pay attention to the sacred within myself? Mm-hmm. And do I see this within others? And and how do I go about doing that? Like how, you know, I had people as I published Namaste Theory be like, how do you teach students this? And like, ah, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, oh. I just don't know. So I had to really sit with and like embody and like mm-hmm. be with this data and, and let it transform me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and that divine spark in, in what Krishna Nambiar was writing about, but also you nodded to Parker Palmer. He's mm-hmm. written about it. Meister Eckert, or mm-hmm. yeah, Meister Eckert has written about this divine spark within us. Mm-hmm. Um, it is this, this piece of who we are that was threaded within. Um, it's, it's part of our inherent worthiness. It's a mm-hmm. part of just our inherent belovedness. Mm-hmm. It is that that infinite worth that mm-hmm. is woven into us um, that allows us to, to, to be here each mm-hmm. day, right? Um, Would you also say uh, Imago Dei or the image of God in us? Yes, that's exactly it. Yes, that's exactly it. It is that image of God within us um, that we read about in Genesis that, you know, we were made in the image of God. Um, Mm -hmm. And that divine spark, you know, I think as we are in this space of just constantly going and serving and doing, we Mm -hmm. lose sight of that because we're so focused on everything around us. Mm -hmm. And I think it is what's so important is for us as helpers to remember that that inner spark is within us and that we are worth tending to Mm. and caring for the gift of our life because of that divine spark, especially Mm -hmm. Um, all the same ways that we are doing so much for others. 
we've got to remember that we are worth that care as well. How do people who are just kind of doing even get a sense that they are coming to burnout if they're so disconnected with their their spark or their embodiment. Is there a way to get people to be able to notice that more easily? That's a good question. So in um, so in the second part of this book, I have these like seven stages that I map out that are as follows. It goes uh, speed, slow, uh, steady, still, see, shift, and serve with the understanding that we have to wake up to our speed um, in order to slow down, create some steadying structures that allow us to be still mm-hmm. in order to see the sacred within before we then can shift to recognize the sacred in others and then serve from that awareness and abundance. Yeah. So, but in terms of uh, recognizing that sacred within us and like, how do we recognize, you know, recognize when we're inching towards burnout? Mm -hmm. um, There is, you know, there are some signs, but one of the things that's really difficult is that when we are operating in that high speed pace, mm-hmm. we often are in that, in this, um, what we understand in addiction circles as mm-hmm. pre-contemplation. Like we're not mm-hmm. even aware um, mm-hmm. of how fast and how hard we're running and all that we're doing and, and what the consequences are of that speed. So I would say to some degree, it really is about paying attention to the most subtle things like how do you feel after getting as much sleep as you had gotten the night before? And how, um, you know, what are the, how are you feeling after, you know, maybe food and drinks and substances that you're taking in and, um, and how, um, you know, pay attention to like maybe potential edginess and irritability Mm -hmm. and, you know, in what ways are you kind of having that closed fist, white knuckling, Mm -hmm. like it's gotta be this way. Um, you know, just those, they're very, very subtle and they're, they're going to be distinct and unique for each of us. But I think if, if your listeners can think about, you know, how are they operating in this moment? How is their body feeling? How, what are their thoughts tied to what it is that they do? And how is doing like a soul check? Like how mm-hmm. is their soul? Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I think, where those answers begin to surface and can give us some direction and guidance. Yeah. One of the great things about your book is that you take people on a a journey. It's a process and you have reflection exercises through the whole Mm. thing. So it's not like you're just saying, hey, everybody, this is what you're doing wrong. I hope you figure it out. (laughs) So you you walk people through each thing and as to slow down or watch your speed instead of Mm -hmm. just, just become aware that you know, my speed's probably extra fast and my whole surroundings are just rushing like rapids, you know, and it doesn't have to be this fast. I'm just going as fast probably as everybody else, like as if I'm on a highway, right? right? But I don't have to be on a highway. I could be on a side road. (laughs) You go through these, each, each step along the way and you kind of hold everybody's hand through it. And then like on page 34, I'll just read these reflection exercises so people get a sense of of how this is. Because I, I would love to see caregivers, and of course, time is at a premium, but caregivers who could either do this online with each other in supportive ways or small group ways in person would obviously be really nice too. But these reflection questions get you to 
notice and reflect and start to gauge what's actually going on in your body, but in your setting as well. So it says, as you read about intrinsic and extrinsic religiosity, did you find yourself identifying with either or neither term in this season of your life? If one resonates more for you, are there previous seasons when the other term was more descriptive of your experiences? And then it's working through the material. And then talks about the asking you about the term namaste and the context you've heard about it before and then Mm -hmm. the third part is reflect on the seven stage journey of seeking the sacred what resonates is there any emotion thought or sensation that has surfaced for you to name and hold space before moving to part two so there really is a lot of guidance here and for people who feel burned out or overwhelmed it's not one more thing to tackle. It's actually being cared for, I think, within this book. So that's a really, uh, to set people's mind at ease, this isn't going to be like, hey, take another project on. (laughs) This is actually a time of self-care, I think, as, as people engage the book. Oh, that's, Lisa, that means so much to me. I mean, even just hearing you say that, that the reader, you know, hearing the sense of feeling cared for in this book, Mm. that means that means the world to me that that is something mm-hmm. that you picked up on mm-hmm. because that is ultimately like my hope with this book is that folks do feel cared for and served and that this doesn't feel like another thing that they have to perfect or perform through or check off a to-do list or anything like that. But that this is that deep inner work that is slow and it is quiet and it mm-hmm. is there's no accolade. Um, there's no, there's no accolade that's going to pop up from reading this, but like, but there is this reward of deepening your connection to the divine within you, um, to healing that inner landscape. That is just, it's so important for helpers in all the ways that they are serving so many people in what they do. That's beautiful. One of the things that I loved, this this little phrase I pulled out in quotes, um, humans are the moving temple of God. Mm. I love that. I love just even just sitting with it. And I would love to know from you on a personal level how that has come into more familiarity with you and, and deepened as you've kind of come in to your own sense of self and sense of speed and slowing down. Yeah, uh, that's a good, I love that you, um, that you drew that from the text. Like that's so beautiful. We talk in a lot of, especially in Christian spaces, we talk quite a bit about, you know, being made in the image of God and, we sometimes just keep it at that cognitive level. Mm. We don't move it into that embodied emotional experiential space. And so, you know, mm. understanding that this divine spark is within each of us and with within everybody around us that we did nothing to earn. Like there is, there's nothing that we hustled for or earned or, you know, achieved in order to receive this divine spark but that it is still nonetheless part of who we are and threaded within who we are. Mm. And so if we are carrying that within us, that does fundamentally change. Like how do we pay attention and care for our bodies? And Mm -hmm. yes, I do want to keep serving and helping others. And that is important and it's good work, but I got to make sure that I'm also 
paying attention to my own soul and serving my soul, not in a way that's like serving my ego or, you know, my programs for happiness or anything like that, but like, or, you know, attachments, but like, but how do I then recognize if I do embody this within me, then what, then what do I need to do? How do I need to move through this day recognizing that it is an unpromised gift um, in and of itself. And then not only how do I see that within me, but if I had this prepackaged within me and did nothing to earn it, then how do I then recognize or how do I think about others who are moving through um, this day and this life and this moment who are also carrying the image of God within them? How do I interact with them? How do I um, engage them? How do I get curious about them and mm-hmm. honor them? Mm-hmm. And and that's not to bypass, you know, when we've been hurt by individuals, when folks have violated our boundaries, or we've been victims of oppression, or, you know, anything like that. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that, or, you know, I, I just want to be really careful about that. But I also recognize that there's just an inner processing of this work, of trying to think through, okay, if if this if this divine spark is within me, then how do I how do I recognize it and honor it within others? Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's not easy work. I will say too, like this is not easy work, and this is not anything I've perfected. So <laughs> if listeners are like, oh, you know, Holly's just going around constantly seeing the image of God in everyone, I can promise you, I'm not <laughs> because I'm human, um, and. And this is a practice, just like, you know, just like learning how to play an instrument or learning a new skill. You know, this is something that we have to intentionally engage in and reflect upon and hold space for um, as we go out into the world. Mm-hmm. You're probably like me and like a lot of people that it's really pretty easy to be nice to people who are loving and nice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that's easy right. to see the spark in, in lovely, yes. kind people. And then the people who are just horrid and mean and attack, yes. and aggressive and attacking people, you feel riled up by that. Or I, I'm going to speak for myself. I feel riled yeah. up by that. Yeah. And I do too. It's okay. <laughs> I do too. You don't immediately go, but there's a spark, you know, you, you, no, gosh, no. <laughs> you're thinking, how do people like this exist? What's happening? Yeah, you know? That's right. I think what's been so hard during COVID as I was reading your book, I was noticing, you know, for caregivers during COVID, boy, yeah. has it really doubled and redoubled the stress. Oh my gosh. Just yes. so hard, yes. whether it's caring for parents or disabled child or yourself that, and you have issues already. Um, the stress level has really ramped up. Boy, you can tell because people who, you know, who are usually so, so okay, some of them have really gone down the tubes. And then people who are like, not great are just vile. <laughs> and yeah. so you can yeah. tell that it's taking its toll. And a lot of harm is happening. And I, I think that there's been a lot of sort of disconnection where we we sort of have been in a sense, this is just my personal opinion, sort of yeah. dehumanized by it because we've been disconnected from each other. And we kind of, in a sense, have lost our humanity, but by not being able to be as close and see ourselves in each other. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, no, I totally do. I think I think you're I think you're right. Um, and we do see that dehumanization happening. It's also in some ways, and granted, I don't have the research to back this up, so uh-huh. like hold this loosely, but yeah. I would say that um similar similarly, it goes back to that idea of, you know, whatever whatever's not healed within will be transmitted. Um, If we are burned out and exhausted, and if we are running on E nonstop, Mm -hmm. we are, we don't have a full well to draw on as caregivers Mm -hmm. to give to others. If our wells are empty, we are drawing on exhaustion and burnout. And that's what we're projecting out onto others. Mm -hmm. And that's not to shame or put any pressure on the Mm -hmm. individual or the caregiver. But I think it is a wake up call for us to say, we are worth caring for ourselves and we are worth caring for one another to the best of our ability. And, mm-hmm. um, and that, that is, I think our, our work, but we do have to, we have to remember to keep our wells full so that we do have, um, something to draw on and draw upon in order to, to give to others. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's important for us to, all of us really to remember everybody's like, Oh, this is an unprecedented time. I mean, have you heard that before? (laughs) So because that's true, we simply have to do things differently in caring for ourselves. And I'd like to read this, this section of your book on page 57 and 58. And this is kind of, I I like this because it's called baby steps to slowing down. And sometimes Mm -hmm. first we don't even know that we're going too fast. And then we think, well, you know, I'll take a little break. But usually if you're not used to slowing down, you kind of have no idea how to do it. It's either kind of a a light switch on or it's off. Like you're either asleep (laughs) or you're running with your hair on fire. And so I'd like to just read this and and you can stop me, add to it, whatever, uh, as as I go. And also this is a great example of how you walk people through. And it says, let's go back to the image of your foot being attached to the accelerator in in a car accelerator pedal and begin to imagine what it might look like to slowly ease off the gas. Start by feeling your foot on the accelerator. That weight, what weight is keeping it there? Is there something, occupational pressure, fear, need for power and control or potential addiction? Name it. If you're like me, the weight pressing on your foot might be hard to name. Some words might flicker in your mind and then quickly dance away because you don't want to face it or because it's too scary or because distractions surface. Still, to the best of your ability, try to stay with it. Be patient with yourself and gently hold the space you need to identify why you keep pressing down on the accelerator. Then ask yourself, what does this weight feel like? Is it causing you stress, anxiety, or worry to even consider it? How fast are you going because of it? Now recognize a simple truth. You will not be able to take your foot off the accelerator without releasing that weight holding your foot down. And you may not really want to. You may have gotten used to this weight, this speed, the shaking and shuddering as you reach a pace that feels almost out of control. You've become comfortable with this discomfort. But what happens when you can no longer control the speed? What happens if you lose control or hurt someone or run off the road? What happens if you run the gas tank dry? I'll just stop there. But I think that it's 
just asking these questions about what am I doing? Why am I doing it? Even if we can't answer all of those why questions, just kind of taking a an inventory about the speed, the feelings, the fears sometimes that are motivating us and pushing us. And we've kind of lost track of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. We've lost track of them in many cases. And sometimes we didn't even realize that those fears were there in the first place. Like we mm-hmm. don't even realize that those fears were, or needs or, or anything, they were pushing our foot on the accelerator to keep going for so mm-hmm. long. And that ties back in with some of that implicit and explicit messaging that we pick up along our journey in mm-hmm. our youth and our early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it ties in with, you know, the pace of our culture that we are just swimming in constantly mm-hmm. and the messages that we are bombarded with around mm-hmm. what is worthiness look like and mm-hmm. how do you obtain that? How do you obtain belonging and connection and and all these layers? Like we, we take these in without even realizing it. And so mm-hmm. I love that you elevated that, that um, section right there because it does kind of speak to that that reflective practice that's kind of woven throughout the book mm-hmm. um, that I, I want the readers to be thinking about. And again, this isn't something that we can just like hurry up and slow down, right? Like so we can't, going through the, this process is not mm. a, a, a way in which we can just say the things that got us here will get us out because mm. we know that that's not how it works. Um, mm. But we have to do that deep inner reflective work slowly and and let it take as much time as it needs to take. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, to be able to actually, you know, find a sustainable pace, knowing as well that there are going to be seasons in life in which we're going to inch that foot back to the accelerator and we're mm-hmm. going to have to hustle. We're going to need to have late nights to catch up on work or, um, or whatever it is that we need to do. Mm-hmm. But the hope is that, you know, really through this book that the reader recognizes that distinction between like hustling for our worth or hustling in a way to run from the pain or the fear mm-hmm. that we have been running from mm-hmm. um, and for it to just be more of a temporary thing instead of a, a a way of being in the world. Yeah. You share really personally too about your own struggle with like, I don't even know how to slow down and being, oh my gosh. You know, <laughs> maybe you can talk a little <laughs> bit about that. <laughs> yes. So, um, so I do talk in this book a bit about um, how my husband and I uh, had served in a recovery ministry in our in our community a, f- a few years back. You know, again, as helpers, like we pridefully oftentimes are like, well, here, let me help you. But mm-hmm. we don't realize that we need the help in a lot of ways. And I mm-hmm. feel like this, this ministry that we were a part of um, was one of those examples. And so mm-hmm. at one point, kind of done some work with the the 12 steps, but then I think it was a, a few months or so into actually serving in this ministry, they had uh, asked me to like, come and um, offer a testimony or speak mm-hmm. um, about, you know, my, my journey. Mm-hmm. And, and I had admitted um, my struggle was speed and, and that mm-hmm. was hard as, enough um, <laughs> as is because I had zero control over how people were going to hear what I was saying. Yeah. But what was so painful and so hard mm-hmm. was when I had 
said, I have no idea how to stop. I have no idea how to slow down. Mm. I have been operating at this high speed pace my entire life Mm. um, or as far back as I can remember Mm -hmm. and always focused on like helping and serving and doing and going for Mm -hmm. others and just not seeing that I was worth that care that I was offering others. And Mm. when I, when I named that I had no idea how to slow down. Mm -hmm. Like I write in the book that like my pride just shattered in that Mm -hmm. moment. I mean, I just remember that heavy feeling of like, here it is. Like Mm -hmm. I'm offering it up. I I don't know how to do this and Mm -hmm. I need help. Mm -hmm. I need, I need, I need help from others. Um, And so that's been a big part of this journey too, in in learning how to receive help from others um, and learning how to, um, yeah, just to, to name my own needs. And that's something I'm hoping that the the readers get out of this book is really getting curious about what their own unique needs are, but then realizing too, like, in what areas do you need, do you need to receive help? If you're the one who's used to giving it, you're not really used to asking. That's right. You know, the yeah. asking can be like, it can feel even embarrassing or, you know, yes. like, are people going to, no one's going to give me help if I'm asking because I'm usually the one giving it. Yeah. And it also positions you to be, you're really vulnerable when you ask for help because the risk of rejection and of someone saying, no, I can't help you mm-hmm. is, is right there. And mm-hmm. um, when you're not comfortable with that form of mm-hmm. vulnerability or potential risk, I mean, mm-hmm. you'll, I mean, I will speak for myself. I did everything to avoid it. So, um, yeah, oh, I love that you brought that piece up. That was. I'm glad you put that in there. It was, if it's just going to be research, then we need flesh and bone on the on yes. the stuff. You know, stories are going to be where we actually feel. It's a, it's a person writing to us, not just a textbook or something, right? No, I know. And I appreciate that. But I will definitely tell you, as an academic, mm-hmm. it has been very, you know, holding that shield of research and just yeah. pointing to the research right. has been a, you know, that's been that's been my my process. So like mm-hmm. this book, which I also write in, I write in the beginning that it has more of an autoethnographic approach because mm-hmm. I am... And I'm living into the research and writing about what it's like to live into this research. Yeah. Um, that is that is like that is not the norm in <laughs> my uh, spaces in academia. And so right. there's a whole lot of vulnerability, but it it really has been a gift to get to lean into that. Um, yeah. In this book. yeah. You kind of echo Brene Brown because that's I, I heard her say yeah. the same thing. She's kind of like, oh, wholeheartedness. That's that's not me. Right. <laughs> that, yeah. she, that she had her yep. breakdown or whatever, her breakthrough. Yes. Her spiritual awakening. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yep. Isn't that such a gift? I mean, also like a painful gift, but it's the mm-hmm. the stuff that maybe God is drawing us into a deeper life and a deeper faith. And it's not going to be, you know, these growth pains are painful, right? But then also, how much more meaningful are they when you have been looking for them and find them and and they're speaking right into you and into your circumstance so well? You know, it's just pretty profound. It is. You wind up like researching your own need. I love how that kind of works out. Yeah. We're doing it 
I guess unconsciously, or we, or maybe we do know on some level, but it's like, oh, so this was about me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes. Oops. <laughs> All right, yeah, got it. I know. Message received. Yeah, I think that we, I, yeah, I think that like there's those nudges earlier on. There's <laughs> obviously a reason that you, you know, like for me Ooh. to have gotten into this line of research, it right. lit me up to, right, you know, right. I loved getting to do this research for so mm. many reasons. Yeah. I was not aware that it was the research I needed for my own journey. Yeah. And there's no way I could have known that um, <laughs> earlier on. Like there's none, but I am, I am. I mean, so I feel like the the only response to that is a posture of deep gratitude mm-hmm. because it 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 has transformed me. Like this research, mm-hmm. you know, like at Baylor, we talk about transformational education, mm-hmm. but I I really do see and appreciate the ways that our research can transform us as well. That's wonderful. Is there anything that I didn't bring out that's in your book that you hope to give people a taste of it or to include as we're speaking about it now? I don't think there's anything else. I I think my hope with this book um, for listeners who are um, tuning in would be that, you know, one to, to obviously like pick up the book and like sit with and sit with these stages, know that they are not linear. This is not something you can checklist through, unfortunately, um, but that it is a, a messy um, process and, and that's part of it. Um, but also my hope is that like the reader, as they, you know, go through this book is that they wake up to that divine spark within them, that they wake up to the fact that their life is a gift, um, and, and that they are worth caring for and tending to the gift of their life. Hmm. Well said. So, yeah, I, you know, and I'm going to just go out on a limb here that it's called the soul of the helper, but everybody listening, this probably applies to you because you need to know that you have an inner spark and you need to know that other people do and you do need to take care of yourself. So mm-hmm. that's why I think you're in good hands with Holly here and you are you can find Holly at hollyoxhandler.com. Where else can people find you? Yeah, um, on any social media, I'm at Holly Oxhandler. Um, and uh, if they pre-order the book, we're gonna we will have some pre-order giveaways that they'll mm-hmm. be able to sign up for and um, and receive those. Those will be on my website soon. And then, you know, because I have this heart for helpers, I have this uh, free one week self care for helpers guide that they can receive by signing up on my website they'll get my newsletter, but then also this like daily walk through creating a self-care plan that echoes, you know, many of the things that we, that are in this book. That's cool. I think it would be also great to use kind of the buddy system on this too. If, if you need this, you probably also know somebody else who does. It might be better to work as a team, print yourself one and get some for somebody else. This is also the hard thing about self-care when you're not used to doing it speaking for myself yes i need a buddy like for exercise i know it's for my own health but if i know that i'm going to be walking with someone i don't want to let them down so i'll do it but Mm -hmm. if i don't have a buddy system i'm a little bit bad at taking care of myself so don't try to solo this self-care because you will let yourself down sometimes if you're anything like me 
I don't think you're alone, Lisa. I think that, I think that having, yeah, I think that having a buddy, you know, to go through the self-care practices, mm -hmm. it can be really helpful. And I, I would hope that, um, that readers would feel the freedom, like to read this book alongside a friend too, and like talk through and wrestle mm -hmm. with the content that's mm -hmm. in the book too. We're worth this, this work and working together. Mm -hmm. Like we need one another. We can't do this in isolation. Yeah. And you find out you're, you're all helpers in the same sort of, uh, with the same sort of quirky, messed up ways. <laughs> They're like, Imperfect. Yes. It does make it a little bit better so that you can kind of check in on each other and, and make sure mm -hmm. that, that you're just sustainable for the long haul, especially if we're looking at COVID variants and maybe you have to be a little more careful and stuff. So it's not like, again, that's why we can't go real fast because the burnout is real. Yeah, that's right. We're not pretending uh, the situation is, you know, oh, if you just, just keep up the pace, we'll eventually break through this thing. And it's, well, actually, we'll have to mm. slow down even more. We have to completely, yeah, we have to slow down and we have to rethink how we're going to move forward because yeah. you're right, the burnout, I mean, the burnout's been increasing for years and this, mm -hmm. I think this just added a hefty layer to it. So, yeah. In some good ways, it's been a time where people have forced reflection on themselves and they're like, okay, I, I'm either going to not do well at all or I'm going to change how I'm living because mm -hmm. I realized it's it's taken me to a completely a breaking point. And so yeah. that's kind of why the, the guidance of a good book to walk you through is all the more important at this point. So thank you for your work, Holly. Thank you, Lisa. I so appreciate it. And I so appreciate you and all of the good work that you are doing to serve so many. Mm -hmm.